Well, hey there. Welcome back to my YouTube channel. Simeon here with you today. I uh, want to talk about this idea of quantum entanglement. Uh, if it's actually a source of communication or interaction at a distance between dimensions and so forth because this is an idea that I've been hearing about ever since I got involved with this idea of remote viewing uh, in 1996 I started going to conferences reading books and thinking about what would be the explanation for how information could travel between you and a particular remote viewing target even if you're separated by huge distances in space or time and if you watched the previous video that I posted on my channel here, I had a session that I did with a remote viewer named Terry, uh, who was 500 miles apart from me when we did this viewing of Area 51. And as you saw in that video, she perfectly described the target picture I had, I had of the hangars at Area 51. Um, even though all she had were the random coordinates that I had on top of the file folder containing the picture. But it really was like she was at the target site. She actually felt like she was there. She went inside the hangars uh, mentally in her imagination. And so this brings up the idea that people have often described, well, how is this working, right? Is this the example of quantum entanglement that we've heard about that's been debated ever since the creation of quantum mechanics over a hundred years ago. And as you know, there were really strong debates about this between uh, Einstein and Schrodinger on one side uh, versus Bohr and Heisenberg and others who had another interpretation of quantum mechanics, Schrodinger and Einstein being more in this idea of that quantum mechanics should be realistic. It should describe the world as we perceive it. This is a source of endless debate whether a quantum mechanic should conform to our intuitions more than it does. The thing about quantum entanglement is it's this idea that if you have particles that are entangled with each other because they're part of the same Schrodinger wave function, that these particles have interacted and they can be described by a wave function, that once you separate these particles, there are these... Uh, permanent correlations between them such that uh, if one particle has one set of behaviors like this property called particle spin, if one of them is spinning uh, in a left-handed way, the other one, uh, if they're paired together, even at these large, super large distances, will have to have the exact opposite spin. So the idea, and, and this is just a very classical analogy it's not quite like this but it's the idea that if you have two gloves one's left-handed and the other's right-handed whoops these are left-handed and right-handed and you randomly put them in two different boxes and again this is just an analogy it doesn't quite work like this but this is a sort of similar uh, idea is if you open one box and you find the left-hand glove you know instantly that the glove in the other box, even if it's on the other side of the planet, has to be the right-handed glove. And that's the idea that these gloves are sort of correlated left and right. And that's sort of the idea of quantum, quantum entanglement. It's not that when you opened one of the boxes that there was communication between these two gloves. It's just that because 
mathematically they're part of a set where they have to be opposite. And this is the idea that they're entangled, that there's a mathematical relationship between them. Uh, means that if one is uh, one state left-handed, the other has to be right-handed state. So people have used this idea to explain a whole variety of paranormal phenomena, including channeling, remote viewing, um, and other sorts of processes where it seems that there's this non-local interaction that the remote viewer uh, knows something that's going on at a distance. And somehow because groups of particles can be entangled, maybe they were at the same frequency or they interacted, they're coherent in some way, that this is how the information is getting from here to there, wherever the target is. Now, actually, I don't think it actually works that way. And the reason is, if you look at the ideas behind quantum entanglement, it doesn't say that there's any information exchange between the particles. It just says that mathematically there's a correlation between them. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about how they could be correlated at distances when they initially started in a random state before you observed them and so forth. But I think it's pretty well established that quantum entangled particles do not exchange uh, information in a way that Einstein described as uh, spooky action at a distance. Um, and that would be the idea that somehow if you made this left-handed glove into a right-handed glove, the other particle would instantly switch to become the left-handed glove. It doesn't actually work like that. It's just a mathematical relationship because quantum mechanics is actually a mathematical description of reality. And I think if you look at the explanation of why some of these phenomena work the way they do, I think that the idea of looking at dark matter and dark matter networks is a much more realistic idea of how um, things can interact at a distance. Because the idea behind dark matter is that we don't know what makes up the vast majority of matter and energy in the universe. Uh, I mean, dark matter outnumbering ordinary matter by a factor of 10 to 1. And if you throw in the idea of dark energy, uh, then you have even more of the mass energy of the universe being some sort of unknown, unexplainable substance or substances that permeate our universe, uh, interact with us directly. And um, the idea of dark matter is basic idea behind it is that it exists in these networks. It's these kind of threads. And you've seen these models before, that these computer simulations where people have created the idea of these threads of dark matter. And this picture that I'm putting up here right now is sort of a simulation, I believe from NASA, of what these dark matter webs look like. And we know from the work of Alexander Parkhamov in Space Earth Human, that a small percentage of this dark matter seems to be known. It's called relic neutrinos, neutrinos from the cosmic background radiation from 13 billion years ago. And these relic neutrinos permeate our universe. They're, uh, again, 
there's more relic neutrinos than all the visible matter that we can see in the universe, even at a half or to 1%, which is what most people agree it would be. And if you look it up, you can look up the idea of neutrino decoupling, how it's essential to the standard cosmological model and so forth of the universe, the way we understand it. Uh, so these relic neutrinos permeate space-time, and they clump and they flux and they flow gravitationally around galaxies, around planets, gravitationally dense objects, and so forth. And looking at it that way, these dark matter threads that permeate our universe are in themselves a type of communication network. Because these neutrinos were all created at the same time in universal history. At one point, they were all coherently related before they started disperse, uh, dispersing as particles, the neutrino field. And so in that sense, there already is something like an ether out there, even though, uh, admittedly, it's, it's hard to detect. You can't detect neutrinos directly. They don't interact with us electromagnetically, but as Parkhamov and others have pointed out, they, uh, their so-called de Broglie wavelength is a few microns, three or four microns, which means they interact with cells. They interact with chemical reactions. They seem to affect uh, nuclear radioactive reactions. The amount of variation in those reaction times seems to be correlated with the position of the Earth relative to the rest of the solar system. In other words, there's uh, effects that vary based on time of year that can't have any other explanation than where the Earth is relative to the galaxy. And as I've mentioned before, this is sort of reflected in remote viewing in the idea of sidereal time. The way viewers' uh, RV accuracy seems to be correlated with the position of the Earth facing in to the center of our galaxy and so forth. The idea that this neutrino flux, which varies based on time of day, you know, where you are in the Earth since it's coming from other parts of the universe. Anyway, this sort of idea of dark matter threads is very interesting. And even other researchers such as uh, Rudonia, enough uh, in Russia have also suggested that these dark matter threads, because of the... Uh, the way that they're dispersed and the thoroughness that they uh, permeate our galaxy and our universe uh, act like sort of a communications network where any variation in any of the particles is going to be it's going to affect the entire network of particles. So it kind of creates this idea of another type of network which I think is a lot more preferable than the idea of quantum entanglement because you don't have these restrictions on neutrino networks uh, not being able to exchange information. I mean, this is what they do. They clump together. Uh, according to my understanding, there are millions of these relic neutrinos interacting with your body every single second since there's so many of them, since they outnumber uh, visible matter, even at the small portion of dark matter that they make up. And this was sort of the idea behind why I think there can be other types of life forms, other types of communication 
beyond what we see. And I mean, I'm just calling them dark matter monsters in this book because I think that goes a long way to explain the behavior, the phenomena we see around Bigfoot, cryptids, and other types of life forms where we see these space-time slips, orbs, balls of light, that sort of mind speak that people say that they experience around Bigfoot, even those sort of premonitions that they get before the encounter. You know, you read these encounters of people who've uh, had interactions with Bigfoot, and they often say that even before the encounter, they had these really strange feelings that made them feel like they wanted to leave. Now, is that because subconsciously they were seeing the Bigfoot around uh, and not being aware of it, you know, but they describe these feelings of uneasiness hours or days before their encounter. So I think this raises the possibility that there are other fields of information. And I think the dark matter idea can go a long way in explaining how you can get this sort of spooky action at a distance. Now, admittedly, it would be at light speed, but that's still pretty fast, and it certainly explains a lot of the paranormal phenomena and experiences that people have right here on planet Earth. Obviously, the idea behind quantum entanglement, it's this sort of instant uh, mathematical relationship. But again, as I said at the beginning, Quantum entanglement is more of a mathematical principle than uh, an actual physical principle that explains the phenomena that we see around us because quantum mechanics as a whole is a mathematical model. No one ever said that the wave function is an actual wave. It's just a probability density function uh, describing probabilities of where you're likely to find particular particles. And before we had this probabilistic interpretation of quantum mechanics, which uh, was largely created by Max Born when he realized that if you square the amplitude of a wave function, you'll end up with a probability distribution, the actual probabilities of where you're likely to find particles if you make measurements. But before that idea, Louis de Broglie proposed that the idea of the wave uh, electron waves was actually a matter wave distribution. It, it was actually a representation of charge density. And that means that it had some sort of physical realism to it. So what happened with quantum mechanics is it got this purely mathematical description, imaginary numbers, where it really doesn't correspond to our actual experience of reality the way uh, we experience it. But I think if you look at all of the phenomena that people experience around UFOs, UAPs, uh, crop circles, as we've mentioned in many other videos, and now cryptids, Bigfoot, uh, ghost sites, hauntings, and so forth, then if you look at those phenomena, you get the same sort of experiences people have over and over again. Cameras stop working, batteries stop working space-time slips, loss of time, uh, just all sorts of matter of phenomena that we call paranormal that just seem really weird. I think if you look at it from this point of view of dark matter energies, threads of dark matter, again, being invisible, but we know that it sort of permeates our universe. And even the quantum interpretation of dark matter, meaning that it's not necessarily threads, as Rodionov argues, by the way, 
that it can be sort of smeared out as a type of charge density, that these threads can sort of become non-local. I just think it implies a whole nother type of communication network that to me seems much more realistic, corresponds to our experiences. And the big plus is it describes these paranormal phenomena, um, especially the types of weird experiences that people have that tend to be called by science as outliers or paranormal, which means, you know, the definition means, well, there's different definitions of paranormal, but one definition means it's not amenable to scientific explanation. Now, I find that idea completely unacceptable. I think there is a science behind this. It just means that you have to believe people's experiences when they say they're experiencing a time slip or precognitive feeling that a UFO is going to show up or an ESP type of experiences. I think we should say those are real experiences and there's actually reasons why that could be happening rather than dismissing those people uh, and treating them in a way that stigmatizes their experiences, ridicules them, and even in an extreme sort of attacks them for having experiences that are outside the norm of what society says uh, should be happening. So one last thing I want to say about this is there's actually an interesting parallel to dark matter networks uh, right here on our planet that doesn't even involve any uh, extraordinary uh, non-ordinary physics. It's fungus and mycelial networks, which uh, science has increasingly discovered, as I read recently in Science Magazine, that uh, 50% of the biomass of soil is myco fungal networks that are so small you can't even see them with the naked eye, but it makes up half the mass of the soil. And these uh, fungal networks are essential to plant life and microorganisms because they create uh, nitrogen. And um, that nitrogen feeds all the plants, which in return, give carbon back to the fungal networks. In fact, these fungal networks are so uh, intertwined with plants and trees that they actually innervate the root structure of plants and so forth. But you can't see them because they're so small. Well, to me, that's a very good analogy of a kind of a dark matter uh, network which is, it's something that you can't see, which is the definition of dark matter. And yet at the same time, uh, it permeates our, the space that we live in on the planet, at least in the soil. And uh, another analogy to this is that uh, mycofungal networks, it's estimated that we have identified less than 10% of all the fungal types out there. Maybe as low as even 1%, just like the ratio of matter to dark matter, that we don't even have names for these different types of fungus because there's just so many of them and they're just everywhere and yet they're so small and they haven't been studied very much. So I think that's a very interesting analogy here. And if you watched any of the recent Star Trek episodes, including one of the latest incarnations, Star Trek Discovery, which last I checked was on its third or fourth, third, I think it was the third season, the last one. Uh, they had this sort of, uh, what did they call it? This uh, spore drive in the Enterprise. Their ships were driven by these mycofungal networks throughout space time, and they had this character 
on the Enterprise they called Stamets, who is actually named after this researcher who studies fungi and mushrooms, Paul Stamets. And they created this idea of a warp drive that was based on fungal networks throughout space time, which is the same sort of idea uh, as dark matter. So I think it's just very interesting that Star Trek, which has always been ahead of its time scientifically, you know, even from the 60s when I started watching it as a little kid, that they're on this idea of these invisible networks that permeate the universe, the, the multiverse, which is something, again, we've had videos about the multiverse in the past, and I think you can see where this is going to go, is you have these networks that permeate space-time, and you could even turn it into a type of warp drive, uh, which sort of makes you wonder whether dark matter and fungal networks are sort of entwined in a way because they're fractal and they break down to this smallest level. And uh, they're so essential you don't even see them around you. But without the fungal networks, we wouldn't even have plants, microorganisms, or larger animals like us because they were here before any of those sorts of species breaking up rocks and turning them into soil. Anyway, those are my thoughts about quantum entanglement versus dark matter networks. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, thanks for watching. We'll see you in the next video. Take care for now. 